Well, if you have a Bible, please grab it and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. It is near the middle of your Bible. Uh, if you don't know how to get there, just go to the very beginning. And uh, there is a, a concord, or a, a, what do you call those things? Uh, yes, a table of contents, those, one of those. Um, and that'll get you where you need to go. Um, or if you have one of the uh, blue or white paperback Bibles from the back, it is on page 318 in those Bibles. Well, we are beginning a brand new sermon series here this morning. We're going to begin walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. We will spend 14 weeks slowly trekking our way through this 12-chapter book. Now, a few items before we begin to dig into verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 here. Uh, first of all, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is a, a wisdom book. It belongs to the, the category of the wisdom literature found in the Bible. Uh, as you know, the Bible is a, a singular book uh, telling one kind of overarching story about the redemption of God's people and of God's creation in and through and because of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it's also a library of smaller books, which are all telling that story. And those books come in many different shapes and sizes. Uh, some are narratives, some are letters, some are poetry, some are uh, biography, some are instruction, some are wisdom. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, uh, along with Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, some of the Psalms, uh, they belong to this category called the wisdom literature. And the reason that these books are called the wisdom literature is pretty straightforward. It's because they seek to impart wisdom to their hearers. You might wonder, wisdom about what? Uh, well, wisdom about everything. Wisdom about God, about life, about the way life works, or what to do or think or say when life doesn't actually seem to work. They're very earthly, earthy and, and practical books. And Ecclesiastes is, is no different. Ecclesiastes is a very earthy, very practical kind of book. In fact, it's actually started, startlingly practical. Uh, it can actually be kind of a little frightening at times, uh, how real it gets with us. It confronts us with the harsh realities of life that we'd often rather leave be. And for that reason, many have deemed Ecclesiastes a somewhat depressing book. And in some ways it, it is. It is truly kind of a depressing book. Some of what we read in it can be Difficult to stomach, difficult to understand, difficult to consider. It can be very unsettling. Now, some of you are going to be disturbed by what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. You might be disturbed by some of the contradictory statements contained therein. You might be disturbed by the sort of existential crisis that the author of this book is going through and processing before us. Some of you might find it a little depressing, but as one pastor once said about this book, the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to depress us into dependence upon God. But on the other hand, some of us are going to find this work, this book, to be somewhat of a, a breath of fresh air. The reason being, this, this book is going to vocalize feelings and thoughts 
you may have thought inappropriate for those who profess faith, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ to have. And yet, here it is in the Bible. God is putting sanctified words to the frustrations we feel about life in a fallen world. The thoughts we have often been frightened to think are here on these pages. The feelings we have often been too scared to verbalize are here on these pages. The frustrations we have often been too fake to express are here on these pages. And so we're invited into this book this morning and to face the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, but that's not all. We're also invited into hope. We're invited into hope. We're invited into the hope of a God whose plans and purposes transcend life in a fallen world. We're invited to, yes, feel the frustration and express the frustration and vocalize the frustration that we feel over the fallenness and futility of this world. But what's more is that we're invited to trust and hope in the God who will ultimately put an end to our frustration and futility, the God who is making all things new. So let's dig into Ecclesiastes here. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these words verbalize what we so often feel about this world, life in this fallen world, about the work that you've given us to do, about life with our families, life with our church, life It's so frustrating. And so we ask this morning that you would confront us with this reality and sober us with this reality, but also cause us to recognize that you are the God whose purposes and plans transcend this futile and fallen life. 
Help us to put our hope and our trust in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, those were probably not words you expected to hear in church this morning, much less from the Bible. Reason being, unfortunately, church is often a place and a people among whom we we put our best foot forward. If the preacher of these words were a regular churchgoer and he showed up here on a Sunday morning, when he comes to church, we'd expect him to kind of put his existential crisis on the back burner, put a lips, some lipstick on his problems, put his dress slacks on, come to church, and when brother or sister so-and-so asks how he's doing, we want him to say something like, better than I deserve, which wouldn't necessarily be untrue, but it's a little misleading. What he says here is a little more discomforting, a little disconcerting, it's a little disturbing. In a sort of seemingly sudden outburst, when brother or sister so-and-so asks him how he is, he says, vanity of vanities. Life is vanity. All is vanity. And isn't that a relief? Isn't it kind of relieving? Isn't his honesty sort of relieving? It resonates. I remember a while back coming across a a, a video wherein a a well-known disgraced comedian went on a rant on the Conan O'Brien show. And in this rant, he just kind of expressed the frustration we often feel about life, but also often suppress because it scares us. And while he's ranting, people are cracking up. And and the, the video went absolutely viral, all because I think it resonated so deeply with so many people. And listen to what he says. He says, you need to build an ability just to be yourself and not be doing something. That's what phones are taking away, is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. That knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're in your car and you start going, oh no, here it comes that I'm alone. It starts to visit on you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people are driving and texting. And they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. And this guy's saying all of this, and, and people are cracking up. People are dying laughing. Because they know, they know the frustration, they know the sadness, the feeling that he's expressing about life and this fallen world. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life in a fallen world is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's what the preacher of, a, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to see. And that's what he wants to confront us with. It's depressing. Yes, but, but remember, he doesn't just want to lead us into this depressed state as an end in and of itself. The preacher wants to depress us into dependence upon God. He wants us to look at the harsh reality of life in this fallen world, dead in the eyes, and be sobered by it. Also that our gaze might be lifted to something beyond life in this fallen world. 
He wants to lead us, as, as he says in the very end of the book, to trust in and obey God. Because while life here and now is tremendously sad and elusive, there is a final and ultimate judgment. There's an ultimate plan and purpose that will ultimately make sense of everything. So let's dig in. The big idea that we're exploring this morning is that life in a fallen world is hevel, but God is making all things new. Life in this fallen world is hevel, but God is making all things new, and that's a word you don't know, and that's okay. We're going to learn some more about it this morning, and we're going to unpack this big idea by looking at the guide, the gist, and the goal of Ecclesiastes. The guide, the gist, and the goal of Ecclesiastes. First, the guide. Now, typically, when we begin a series walking through a book of the Bible, we identify and discuss the author of the book and the the significance of the author's identity uh, to the message of the book. However, when considering the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not really that simple. Now, verse 1, chapter 1, we see an introduction to someone called the preacher. Verse 1 says, "...the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem." The preacher, he's our, he's our kind of guide as we walk through Ecclesiastes. Now, the word preacher it, here is the Hebrew word kohelet. Uh, it's a word that literally means like gatherer or assembler. It's someone who gathers people into an assembly, uh, which in the Hebraic scheme of things would be this person, the preacher. Uh, this morning, the gathering of Veritas, I am the, the Kohelet, the, the preacher. I, along with the elders and with Brian, uh, have gathered us here this morning for the purpose of prayer and praise and preaching. And that's what it means to be the, the Kohelet, the preacher. The preacher is gathering people together in order to listen to this particular message, the message of Ecclesiastes. Now, who is the preacher exactly? Uh, that's also kind of difficult to answer, uh, since we don't know for certain. Uh, Early Jewish and Christian sources believe that the preacher and author of Ecclesiastes is actually King Solomon. Now, reason being, there's a few hints throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that seem to imply that the preacher is King Solomon. But notice something interesting. In in verse 1 here, it seems that someone else is actually introducing the preacher in his words to us. The same is true at the end of the book as well. In in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, we find someone other than the preacher speaking to us. And this is what he says. He says, starting in verse uh, 8 of chapter 12, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So you see, there's, there's the preacher... And then there's this person who kind of introduces the preacher at the beginning and then kind of summarizes the teaching of the preacher in the end. So that's interesting, isn't it? And now there's several different theories that scholars have to to try to explain this. One common theory is that the preacher is Solomon and that he wrote the content of Ecclesiastes and then a later figure came across Ecclesiastes and kind of acted as the, the sort of editor and publisher of the book. And this later editor and publisher is the person speaking at the beginning and the end of the book. Yet another common theory is that the author and the preacher are the same person, that the preacher is just sort of speaking uh, of himself in the third person at the beginning and end of the book, which is a little weird. Or another common theory 
is that this book was written sometime after Solomon had died, and that the author was sort of simply kind of writing under the pseudonym of the preacher, likely wanting you to see the preacher as Solomon. It's sort of a a rhetorical device. And modern thinkers might sort of see that as being a little dishonest, but it was actually a very common rhetorical device of the day. For example, the, the philosopher Plato, the famous philosopher, he wrote his probably best-known book, The Republic. But if you read The Republic, it's interesting. It's actually a, a fictional conversation between the deceased, also famous philosopher Socrates and some of his friends in town about what it means to be a, a just person and a just society. Now, of course, Socrates was dead by the time Plato wrote the book, uh, but, and everyone at the time knew that, uh, but Plato, he wasn't being dishonest. He was just, in an interesting and entertaining way, he was communicating these philosophical concepts so that people would be more likely to grab, uh, that he would be more likely to grab and keep people's attention. Perhaps the author of Ecclesiastes was employing a similar method. Under the guise of the preacher, likely supposed to be Solomon, uh, the author leads us to consider the ultimate meaning and purpose of life in a fallen world, and he does so in a rather compelling and interesting and beautiful way. Yet, at the end of the day, it doesn't ultimately matter who the preacher and who the author of Ecclesiastes is, because you can still understand the basic concept of the book apart from knowing those facts. The preacher, as he is presented to us in Ecclesiastes, is a person who has had all, like, access to all the best things in life, all the best things that life has to offer, he has had access to. And yet because of that, he is also someone who can testify to the emptiness of it all. He, he had access to the best education and wisdom and knowledge. He had access to the greatest wealth, the greatest possessions. He had all these houses and all these gardens. He had access to to all these pleasures that most people could never even dream of. He had the best food and the best drink. He's he's done the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. He has had fame. He has tried his hand at work that he found personally fulfilling and enjoyable. He has had access to unfettered power and authority as king. He has tried it all, And yet he's telling us in this book that it's all actually futile. It's empty. There is no satisfaction in it all. And even if there is satisfaction in these things, it's short-lived. He basically tells us what I once heard Jim Carrey say, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. That's what the preacher wants you to know and see this morning. Only he communicates it somewhat differently. He communicates it in a rather beautiful and pithy phrase that he repeats throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Look with me next at the gist of Ecclesiastes. Now, the gist, the the sort of big idea of Ecclesiastes is, is not hard to discern. It's the phrase that the book ends and begins with. And not only that, but it's a phrase that's said in Ecclesiastes like 38 times. It's this phrase we've already seen here in verse 2, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But here it's interesting because the word translated as vanity and as vanities is, it's a little more concrete than the English word vanity. It's not that vanity is a bad translation. 
It's not a, a bad interpretation necessarily of the word here, but it means something a little more specific. The word translated as vanity is the word hevel. Hevel, okay? So uh, if you go to the next slide, hevel, this word hevel. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a word that, that literally, it means something very concrete and specific. It's, it's a word that if it was literally translated, it might say something like this, mist of mists. Mist of mist, says the preacher, all is mist. Or, or some translations put it this way. They say, vapor of vapors. All, vapor of vapors. All is vapor. That's literally what the word hevel means. So if, if this were a normal January and it was really cold outside, I guess it's a little colder today, but you'd go outside after church and you'd inhale and exhale. And when you exhale, what would come out of your mouth is hevel, this mist, this vapor. The, the moisture in your breath would kind of gather and collect and, and your breath would turn into this mist, this vapor. It would turn into hevel. That's what hevel is. That's, a, that's the actual meaning and image that the word hevel gives you. But it's obviously kind of an analogy at the same time, isn't it? It's, it's trying to communicate something. He's not saying that literally life is hevel. He's, it's, it's an analogy. He's trying to say something about what life is. He's, he's trying to say, he's making a claim about the, the, the nature of life in a fallen world. And what it's trying to communicate is, is a little more complex than just one word can, can communicate. First, it's communicating that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. Life is, is short, right? Life, life is brief. Life is momentary, passing, transitory. It's fleeting. Notice that immediately right after you breathe into the cold air, the hevel is there for a moment, but then it dissipates into thin air. Life is like that, isn't it? Indeed, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 144 verse 4, that man is like Hevel, man is like a breath, it says. His days are passing like a shadow. In fact, this is not obviously the, the only place where we see the word hevel, not here, not in Ecclesiastes or Psalm 144. We see it in a number of places in the Old Testament. But we see it actually very early on in the Scriptures. It's actually somebody's name, okay? We typically call him Abel. Now, that's how we transliterate his name into English, but in Hebrew, his name is Hevel. And if you know the story of Cain and Abel, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Adam and Eve are created in Genesis 1 and 2 as vice regents to order and cultivate and rule over the earth as representatives, as righteous representatives of God. And yet, Instead, they rebel against God and they reject his purpose for them and, let, and they let the created order actually rule over them instead. And because of this, creation is subjected to futility and frustration and death enters into God's good world. And it doesn't take long for this to happen. Thorns and thistles infest the ground and the family and the work and the pleasures. And so Cain and Abel, brothers, end up being at odds with one another. And Abel is a godly man, Cain is a wicked man, and because of Cain's great jealousy, he murders his brother in cold blood. Now, I'm not sure whether or not Abel's name meant vapor 
from the get-go, or if we only call him that in light of what happened to him, or if his name came to mean what it later meant on in, in, in light of what happened to him. But I'm sure that Adam and Eve, as they looked upon the lifeless body of their boy, and they saw the fruit of sin and its effects on a fallen world, hevel, vapor, mist, it's likely what came to their minds. As the preacher puts it here, a generation goes and a generation comes and the earth remains forever. Life is fleeting. Life is short. Life is heavy. You're born, you live a short while, and then you die and you're forgotten. Because of this, when the preacher says that life is heavy, he also means that life is futile. It's fleeting and it's futile. And this is what the, the translators of the ESV are, are trying to get at when they translate the word hevel as vanity. And it's not that vanity is a, a bad word, but as we often use the word vanity, we, we often use it to talk about someone who's kind of self-obsessed. You know, they're vain persons, vanity. That's not what the preacher means here. He means that life is, is futile in that at the end of the day, what do you gain from it all? What do you, gain, what do you actually gain from life? He actually asks this question in verse 3, and it's rhetorical. You're not supposed to answer it. The implied answer is nothing. You gain nothing. Look at what he says, starting in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, and around and around it goes. On its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All these things, they're all just full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. You see, do you see what he's saying? He's saying that life is vain, it's futile, in that it's cyclical and monotonous and repetitive, and you don't actually accomplish anything of lasting significance, and then at the end of your life, you die and you're forgotten. And he actually communicates that in a really beautiful way. In this poem, he illustrates this truth. And he appeals to the cycles of nature. The sun rises and it sets every day, though it does the same exact thing every day. The wind, it blows right past you and it goes around and around and then it comes your way again. The rivers and streams, they run into the sea, but then the, the sun heats the ocean waters and it evaporates into the air and becomes clouds and then it rains and snows and it goes into the streams and it goes right back into the ocean again and over and over and over again it happens. And of course, our days possess very same kind of reality. Our lives are like this. We wake up, we eat, we go to work, we eat, we work some more, we go home, we eat, we sleep, and then we wake up and do the same thing all over again. Maybe there's, our days possess some sort of pleasure here or there. Maybe we enjoy one of those meals. Maybe we enjoy the work we do. Maybe we enjoy time with our families. Maybe we enjoy some form of entertainment or something. But those pleasures, they never actually satisfy us, not really. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All the pleasures we experience in this life, they're short-lived, and then on into the mist they go. 
And not only that, but notice he says there's actually nothing new or fresh in it all. It's just the same stuff over and over and over again. There's nothing new in this fallen world. I hate to break it to you, but all you new year, new me folks, if you expect another orbit around the sun to make you new, you are sadly mistaken. At the end of this year, you may have started flossing and eaten a few more salads, but you're still going to be stuck with the same old you, just another year older and closer to death. You might say then, well, there are some things that are new, right? From Dayton, Ohio, home of the Wright Brothers. Think about the airplane, that's new. It's not. The preacher would say to you, sure, that's like a new way to get from A to B, but that's just transportation. People have been doing that from the beginning. That's nothing new. You might think about computers. Those are new, right? Kind of. It's just another way of finding information. People have been finding out new information since the beginning of time, too. How about social media? Wow, that's new actually just another way to communicate. People have been communicating with one another through various means and methods in the beginning of time. If you really step back and consider it, you have to ask yourself, has it really improved our lives at all? Probably not. It doesn't actually make anything better at all. See, all of this is futile. It doesn't change anything. Not really. It doesn't actually make anything better, if at all. Life just goes on and on. There's nothing new. It's monotonous and repetitive. Nothing new happens. Nothing lasts. Then you die and you're forgotten. No wonder he says all things are full of weariness. Indeed they are. That's why lastly, saying that life is hevel doesn't just mean that it's fleeting or futile. It also means that it's frustrating, right? I mean, you can hear the frustration and what he's saying here, and doesn't it, it, it resonate with you? It does with me. I, I, I think that every single one of us has experienced those moments where you lie your head down at the end of the day, and you grow so weary and discouraged with the futility of it all that you just don't know if you're able to get up the next morning and do it all over again. I know I cannot be the only person in this room who has experienced that. Life in a fallen world is tremendously frustrating, tremendously sad just by being in it. It's frustrating, it's futile, it's fleeting. Your monotonous and repetitive days are filled with thorns and thistles, and then you don't actually accomplish much, if anything, of lasting significance. You die and you're forgotten. It's hevel. And notice that the preacher doesn't just say that it's all hevel. He says that it's hevel of hevels. This is kind of Hebraic method of emphasizing something. You know, we might use an exclamation mark. They would repeat the phrase twice. See, this is, you know, like when the angels in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, they call out to God in praise. They say, holy, holy, holy. They're saying God isn't just holy, He's holy, holy, holy. He is holiness itself. I love uh, R.C. Sproul's illustration of this from Genesis 14.10. In Genesis 14.10, 
says that the kings of Sodom fell into some pits. That's what our translations say. But the original manuscripts, they say that they fell into pit pits. As R.C. Sproul said about this, he says, now there are pits and there are pits. Some pits are pittier than others. These pits, the pit pits, were the pittiest pits of all. It's one thing to fall into a pit. You might be able to get out with some help from your friends. But if you fall into pit pits, you are in deep trouble. Likewise, the preacher is saying here that all is hevel, hevel. Life and work and relationships and pleasure and wealth and all the rest of it. All the stuff we have and experience in this fallen world is not just hevel, it's hevel, hevel. It's mist of mists, vapor of vapors. Life is hevel. And if life is, you know, it's not just hevel, it's hevel, hevel. If, if, if it were just hevel, you might be able to muster up the strength and courage to face it on your own. But if life is hevel, hevel, I think that might just be too much to bear. Are we depressed yet? Good. That's, that's the goal of Ecclesiastes, to depress us into dependence upon God. Because don't you see, the only hope of lasting purpose and meaning and significance, the only hope we have is if there is a God whose plans and purposes transcend our small, insignificant little lives. The only way we can cope with the insufferably repetitive and monotonous cycles of our everyday lives is if there's a day coming which will make sense of it all. If life is not just cyclical but linear, it's headed somewhere. And the book of Ecclesiastes wants us to see that it indeed is. Because there is a God that will, Ecclesiastes 12, 14 tell us, tells us, He will bring a final and ultimate restoration and judgment to this world. As he says in the book of Revelation, he will finally, ultimately, completely make all things new. How do we know that to be true? We know that to be true because of a later preacher, a son of David, king in Jerusalem, who came after the preacher of Ecclesiastes, And this son of David was not just a son of David, he was the son of God. He was God himself come to be our king. God himself stepped into the hevel of it all. He stepped into this fleeting, futile, frustrating life, and he truly experienced the futility of it all. He worked a menial job day in and day out for years and years. He dealt with the thorns and thistles of work life and family life and eating and drinking and all the rest of it. And eventually, he even tasted the fleeting nature of life. He tasted death on a Roman cross at the hands of wicked men. Hevel of hevel. All is hevel. But that's not all. On the third day, he rose again. And here's part of what is so enthralling about that. Colossians 1.15 tells us that in his resurrection, he became for us the firstborn of the new creation. And did you catch that? I mean, in a world where there's nothing new under the sun, 
Christ is the firstborn of the new creation. Calling him the firstborn because in all reality, his resurrection is just the beginning of what God plans to do with the entirety of his creation. You see, although there is nothing new in a fallen world, God has brought the new world, the new creation to bear in upon this one. And because Christ has risen as the firstborn of the new creation, he has given us the new covenant in his blood, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. He has given us the new birth by the power of his resurrection, 1 Peter 1, 3. He has included us in his new creation, for if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And that's not all. One day, he will return to give us new bodies, Philippians 3, 21, and to renovate the entirety of this cosmos by giving us a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, 1. And as he says in Revelation 21.5, he is making all things new. And so we say with Paul in Romans 8.20 that indeed the creation was subjected to futility. This world, this creation is futile. It has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Don't you see, if life under the sun is all that we have, then of course we ought to give in to despair. But you see, life under the sun is not all that we have. We have Christ. And in him, we have the new creation, the new birth, the new covenant, the new hope of new bodies and new heaven and new earth. For we possess the son of David and the king who is making all things new. We have a God whose plans and purposes transcend our small little lives in this futile and fallen world. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Possessing Christ and being included in his new creation project and knowledge of God's plans and purposes doesn't make us immune to the frustrations of this futile and fleeting life. We still very much live in a fallen world and we experience the frustrations that accompany it. But I hope you see that even in the midst of this futile world, we have hope. We have hope, and because we have hope, We possess a certain courage to face it. We possess a certain strength to face it. We possess a certain contentment in the midst of it. We we possess a certain resilience even in the face of those frustrations. For whenever our eyes are drawn to the hevel of life under the sun and we're we're tempted to despair, we can raise our eyes to what lies beyond the sun, namely our God and our Christ. I could say the words of the old gospel chorus, an old gospel song. I used to always, I grew up hearing my mother sing. She used to sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth living just because he lives. Life indeed is hevel in a fallen world, but we have a God and a Christ who is making all things new. Let's trust in him.
Let's pray. Father, would you encourage our hearts with this word? As we prepare to come to the table, would you remind us that we are going to one day see Christ face to face and feast with him the marriage supper of the Lamb. Stir up hope in our hearts with this. In Jesus' name, amen.